Welcome. This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. I'm using some of the latitude this podcast title describes not to focus on a writer for this show, but a place that holds a work of thousands of writers. It's a fantastic bookstore, Port Richmond Books in Philadelphia. New York has a strand and Portland's had Powell's books. And I think this is like Philadelphia's version of that. And it's a great bookstore that I've been a regular customer of for 12 years and I really love it. And you know, unfortunately it's closing this fall, but I wanted to celebrate it. Uh, like all the great books I've picked up here and the community that's here. And we're going to talk about that. So uh, I'm here with Greg Gillespie, who is the uh, founder and owner and uh, raconteur extraordinaire. Uh, who's with us, and also joined, we're joined by William Hastings, who's a, a writer, who's author of the recent novel, The Howling Ages, and the nonfiction book, The Hard Way. But he's also a bookseller at Farley's Bookshop in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is about 35 miles up the Delaware River from here. So and he's been doing that for more than 10 years or so. So you know the, the book business pretty well. So we're going to talk about bookstores and this great one in, in particular, which will be closing in a few months. Um, I mean, I've always loved bookstores and wherever I've traveled, you know, I like to find a bookstore and browse through it. And, and I moved to Philadelphia in 2006 and uh, had been here maybe a couple of months, maybe into early 2007. And I heard about this great big bookstore that's in an old movie theater. I'm going back to, I mean, this building was a, a silent movie, movie theater. Uh, many years ago and somebody said hey you know you won't believe how many books have you got to go up there and check it out so my wife came up and and to see it we walked in and I walked into the the room that has all the fiction it was right in the front lobby and I was blown away to see a huge stack of books by Larry Brown who's a writer from Mississippi who I really love and uh, you know you didn't see that much Larry Brown you know, novels are up in the Northeast, you know, in Mississippi, you know, in, in uh, square books in Oxford, Mississippi, you would see him. But here, I mean, his novel, his posthumous novel, A Miracle of Catfish had come out that year and it was hard to find a new copy. But I browsed around. I found things by Barry Hanna, Harry Cruz, Pete Dexter, Carl, just old stuff by Carl Hyacinth and first edition. It just blew me away. I mean, this bookstore, you know, I immediately knew it was really special. So I browsed around and went beyond the fiction section into the back, which was where the movie house was. And it's a it's vast. There's just so many books back there that I couldn't believe it. So I filled up my arms with books and I went up to pay. And that's the first time I ever met you, Greg. So I went up and uh, I learned that the uh, store didn't take credit cards. And I only had about 24 bucks in my wallet. And that was way short of what I needed. And I said, well, I'll go to the ATM and I'll come back. And you said, no, just take the books and come back and pay me when you're here next. I'm like, you didn't know me from Adam and you trusted me to come back and pay you. And uh, that had not been my experience in, with Philadelphians, so, you know, for my first six months or so. I know I'd been flipped off a couple of times just for crossing the street in front of somebody <laughs> and people in passing cars and had cursed at me for whatever reason. So, uh, I was, I was stunned and, uh, I did take the books, but I went back and paid, but I, I learned, you know, in that moment, I mean, in addition to this huge collection of books, which, uh, it's worth traveling from a long distance to come see, 
the community here was great. And we're sitting around the table where people have sat for years and told stories and drank beer and had, had an excellent time. So, uh, it's always been a great place to come and meet people and have a great time. And, uh, I miss living as close to it as I used to, to, to get here more often. Um, so Greg, you opened in what, 2003? Yes. So yeah. Where did all these books come from? I mean, this, and how many of them are there, do you think? Probably at this point, maybe 350,000. And uh, there was a private collection that belonged to Mrs. Kogan and her husband, Jay, which was 40,000 books, uh, mysteries, or spy novels. And they were donated to Temple University, where Jay and Dean graduated. And uh, that that took up three or four rooms and uh, so at one point it was more than 400,000 books when yeah, you had that collection yeah. tell us about Jay and Dean Kogan well Jay and Dean well I met them uh, owned a theater in Society Hill Playhouse and uh, I went down and auditioned for a play uh, by one of my favorite playwrights I'd never acted before uh, it was Borstal Boy by Brendan Bayon and I had just gotten back from Ireland and uh, was in Dublin looking for where he lived and talked to people that knew him. And uh, when I came back, uh, there was an ad in the uh, bulletin for actors uh, for this Borstal boy, which was an autobiography. He was in prison for IRA activities. And uh, I auditioned, I lied, that I was in other plays, and... uh, I did confess that to Dean and Jay, and they said, we knew you lied. <laughs> but I could do the accent, and uh, they were or the broke, and uh, I was hired because of that. And uh, then after that, uh, I did a few, few more plays, and we became very close. They became mentors, uh, and Jay had... And, and Dean, but not as much as Jay had the uh, the bug. And uh, we shared that. And Saturdays, holidays, we would go out looking for books. And he never said he was a collector. He said he was an accumulator. <laughs> and at that time, I was just reading. I was picking up books that I wanted to read. I wasn't collecting them other than just to, to be able to read them. Where Jay was like, yeah, I would come out with four or five books. He would come out with a box or two. And uh, he, you know, he knew his stuff. They belonged to various mystery clubs, the, uh, the Wolf Pack, Nero Wolf. Uh, they belonged to the Sherlock Holmes, the, the Copper Beach Club, I think it was called. And uh, they were really into it together. They were very socially involved uh, they were just, they were really, they were good people. And uh, Jay always wanted to have a bookstore. And Jay died oh, 21 years ago. And then when I retired from the city as a health worker, uh, Dean said, let's open up a bookstore. And I said, well, how are we going to do that? He said, I'll buy a building. I'll pay the bills. <laughs> and... Uh, you guys have the books, and Jay and I did uh, accumulate uh, probably about at that time maybe uh, 
100,000 books, which we kept in storage uh, down at 6th and Christian, uh, a warehouse that they had bought for the, uh, the theater to store and to build sets. And, uh, and then when Jay passed away, I mean, which I said was 21 years ago, Dean just, this was her following Jay's dream it was to open up a bookstore and she wanted after I retired from the city she wanted to make sure that I didn't get into any trouble <laughs> <laughs> and made sure I had something to do and we uh, ended up here in Port Richmond it was a hardware store so the first year uh, we were in the hardware business uh, selling off we, we she had to buy it lock stock and barrel I believe she paid more for the stock than the building. It, you know, it was an old uh, theater. It was pretty run down and uh, needed a lot of work. And we gave ourselves a year to sell off all the uh, the hardware, uh, which we did. And then what was left, we called Habitat. We called a couple charities to come and clear it out. And uh, then we brought the books in, and uh, we you know ran from there. And Dean was very hands off. Uh, she would, she gave me free reins, which uh, I felt like my own playground. And uh, she did pretty much keep me out of trouble. Well, I didn't, um, I didn't know Jay, but I got to know Dean pretty sure. well. And yes. I know she passed away uh, last year. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it's a year and a half. Year and a half. Yeah. And uh, she ran Noricon, and she, she was a dinosaur. So much. Was, yeah. At eighty-seven, she was still amazing. Uh, incredible. And, and yeah. uh, she was a remarkable woman. Yeah. And she, uh, I would say that she was. You know, it sounds corny, but the uh, first lady of uh, mystery in Philadelphia. She, yeah, she was. was involved in so many incredible endeavors to push, especially like Goodiscon. Uh, with Lou Boxer, who's just uh, a saint of a man. And uh, together, and with the help of a few of us, they uh, they made uh, you know, the goodest con into something that just still is fantastic. Yeah, Norcon. It became Norcon. Norcon, right. And, uh, yeah, right. no, that's a fan. So it wouldn't have happened without her. No, no, not at all. And, and with Lou. I have to give him double billing there. So what's... I probably in my house have maybe 2000 books and moving them around. I don't want to move ever again just because I don't want to move those books. How do you move a hundred thousand books or 200,000? I mean, this, the amount of boxes and lifting and what's that like? Well, you have to have friends who have children because <laughs> my friends can't do it anymore. <laughs> We're all in our uh, early 70s and uh, with various uh, ailments. So uh, you rely on your children. Uh, I've got two wonderful children, Annie and Paul, and uh, they've been a big help as long. And also my wife, I have to definitely say she's been a driving force. And with the help of my friends, which I, uh, I'm lucky to say I have... Uh, I've a few that uh, are just incredible. And uh, then we have people in the neighborhood who are always looking for work. So uh, we rely on them as well. Don't sometimes people just leave boxes of books on the sidewalk here for you? They do. Uh, it's, <laughs> I always felt an obligation to uh, take care of books. 
uh, I don't want to make light of it, but I feel like I almost feel like the Schindler of books that I've got to save every book. And uh, I'll take them in. Uh, if I can't use them, I'll find a place rather than uh, recycle them. But there are some that you just have to recycle. But yeah, it, it's, you know, you come in in the morning and there's, there's boxes of books and you just go, God almighty. Uh, and it's always fun to look through them, but it's, it's frustrating. It, it is, but that hasn't happened lately. And I think it's mostly because of the condition of the street. So this is kind of like a humane society for, yes, it is. for lost books. <laughs> yeah. I like your, um, tell, sometimes people will come in here who haven't been here before and are stunned at the volume of books. And they'll ask you, have you read all of these books? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I stole this from Tom Casey, who... Uh, uh, is a dear friend. I've known Tom for 50 years. But he was studying in medical school and went to a uh, professor's house where the professor had this uh, den, you know, lined with books from floor to ceiling. And uh, Tom said, uh, Professor, did you read all these books? And uh, the professor said, yes, Tom, some of them twice. <laughs> so... <laughs> So without lying, I can say, uh, yeah, I've read some of them twice without <laughs> having read probably uh, 95% of them. But I have read some of them twice. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like trying to read everything is like trying to, you know, drink the ocean. You know, there's mm -hmm. just so much that you can never, you can never get to it. Yeah, but you got to try. I mean, read voraciously, <laughs> you know, otherwise... What's your night table like? Oh, it's awful. <laughs> I don't even have a table. It's just books. <laughs> yeah. It's just a stack that goes from floor to the bed. Mine are under my bed. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, the, oh, I guess about a year ago, I was trying to reach a book that got pushed further and further. And I reached too far and I fell out of bed. And I had, my knees weren't repaired then. And I was lying on my back and I'm thinking, this is how it's going to be. I'm just going <laughs> to lie here on the floor. Um, writers who've come in here you've gotten to know I know that one time I think I was coming in like George Pelicanus was pulling off in a fancy expensive yeah. car like a car like the Mustang yeah, yeah, yeah. The bullet yeah, it was like the bullet like bullet, Steve yeah, McQueen yeah, yeah. and uh, I know well, not a writer but Paul Giamatti was in here not that yeah. long ago so tell me about writers and other perhaps you know Paul people like that have come through well writers uh I mean, it's such a tough business now, especially, I mean, when I started 16 years ago, it was kind of, it was hard. Now it's even harder to get published. And, you know, thank God you can self-publish. And there's a lot of books that are sort of looked down upon because they are self-published. But there's many writers that I wouldn't have discovered if they hadn't had the ambition to self-publish. But, you know... I, I don't know, people find a bookstore 
I guess. I mean, there might be, there is some kind of magnetism uh, between, of course, there has to be between a writer and a, a, a bookseller. So, you know, like with the Philadelphia writers who just are so wonderful, I mean, Sam, I mean, I just loved your books and, uh, you know, Dwayne and Dennis and Dennis, Dennis uh, Tapoya and Dwayne Swarzynski and I just don't want to leave anybody out because there are so many. And uh, it's like when they come into your life, uh, it's a new aspect of your life. It's, you know, it's not just a friendship. It's a, uh, it's a responsibility almost to, uh, you know, push them and favor them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, I'm very blessed with the, uh, the writers that have come through here. Uh, most of them, I, I feel are friends and, uh, that's, yeah, that adds on to a really nice circle. Yeah. Well, two of the best, uh, readings and book launches I've had were for my novels here. So that was a great, I remember this room actually was packed with people one time. It yeah. was one of the best, uh, readings I ever did. Yeah. So, okay. uh, that was, I appreciated that. And you've been really supportive of a lot of writers work. So we writers certainly appreciate that. Um, what are some of the more rare and interesting books that you've sold and you've come across here? Uh, there was, I guess it's two years ago now. I was here one night and I was, uh, you know, I just uh, stayed late. It was a winter night. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I was just paging through this book that I'm not even sure how I found it. It was a collection of newspaper articles. Uh cut out from different newspapers. It was the whole, you know, th three or four authors. And in the back was a, a tipped-in manuscript uh, by Quarles Quickens. So I looked into it, and there was some kind of uh, to-do about who Quarles Quickens was. And a lot of people said it was Edgar Allan Poe. And it was a uh, it was a hell of a find. Uh, but the history detectives, which used to be a uh, television show on uh, PBS, uh, we sent them a copy of it, and they looked into it, and they said they they couldn't do a show on it because they couldn't say whether it was or wasn't. They're, you know, so uh, that ended up at the University of uh, Virginia along with this other, uh, it was called The Inebriate by Walter Whitman. It was his first and I think only novel, but it appeared in the newspaper that he was working uh, with up in New York as a printer. And uh, it was a four-page novelette, and uh, it, was, it was popular because that's when all these temperance novels came out, you know, 10 days in a bar room and... Uh, apparently, we we did do a little research on that, and uh, he had written it uh, on a binge. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's that's the uh, story behind it. So Tom Congleton, a great book dealer over, I I just don't handle that kind of a, a rare book, so I turned it over to Tom, and he uh, passed it around, and it ended up at the University of Virginia. Wow. The inebriate. Yeah. The inebriate, yeah. Walt it, Whitman. 
Walter. Walter. Walter Whitman. Yeah. Same as the Walt Whitman we know. The, it, the wasn't, well, the, it wasn't Wally Whitman. <laughs> from the guy Camden. who the bridge is named for, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was him. Oh, cool. Um, and also, you some of your books appeared in a uh, M. Night Shyamalan film, right? Didn't they buy some yes. books? Yes. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a network, and the guy, Rob, who goes by the name of Ratface... I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet Radface. I've never met Radface. Great guy. <laughs> he introduced me, uh, introduced himself as Ratface when I first met him. I said, I'm not going to call you Ratface. Well, everybody calls me Ratface. I said, so, what's your real name, Rob? So he was, a, he's a set dresser. And uh, he had to buy books, you know, and it's kind of weird because I had never sold books by the foot. Uh, so I got into that loop with, uh, set dressers, uh, for different movies that were being shot here. And, uh, the last one was just this past week. Uh, there's a series being shot in Philadelphia and a woman came in who was the, uh, the woman who buys the books and said, you know, dresses the set. And she needed 20 feet of books. So you get out a, a tape, you see what 20 feet of books looks like, and then you make up a price because, you you know, you're, you're not going to go individually. So, uh, but I, yeah, we've had, and Sam Katz, who's a local guy, who's a politician, but now he's a filmmaker in Philadelphia, does documentaries, very good documentaries uh, that are uh, pretty much in Philadelphia. But he uh, he uses the place. Uh, he, he used it two or three times. Uh, sends people over, and then they buy books for the sets. And uh, yeah, it's 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 weird, and it's funny. I yeah, I never went to see a movie to make sure that oh yeah, there's my books. Yeah, but you made you made a lot of homeless books famous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and people say yeah, I don't care what they they just have to have that look. And then they would call their producer, director, and show pictures of it. And they go, yeah, buy those. So. Well, tell me about some of the weirdest customers or things people have done in here over the well, <coughs> 16 years. About, it's about seven years ago. I have a, a hard time hearing. I was in the tree business for a number of years, and I blew my ears out from chainsaws and... Uh, so I, I got a call on my cell phone, which is still old school flip, and I was outside, and uh, this girl, you know, was on the phone and says, "Yeah, we'd like to use your uh, bookstore for readings. We read, you know, for like holidays, we come around and we read at uh, different bookstores." And I was in the back, ninety fives right behind me, so I was going, "Okay, yeah, you can use the bookstore. That's not a problem." And uh, they said they wanted to read, uh, oh, it was Neil Gaiman, that's who they were reading. Uh, and they showed up, and nice-looking young girls, and they had a photographer that went back and was taking pictures. I said, okay. I said, uh, who are you? I said, I couldn't really hear, who are you? And they said, we're uh, girls reading naked. <laughs> and I said... <laughs> He goes, yeah, we've, and I said, uh, yeah, I've seen it like in a city paper that they do readings in the nude. And 
I said, well, is it tasteful? They said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, uh, so I said, all right, you just go in the back and don't get any splinters. <laughs> and so that was really, you know, weird. And uh, we have a music video that's going to be shot on Monday here. And uh, when the guy, Will, showed up to, you know, look around and find out where they wanted to shoot, we happened to be standing in the back where uh, about six or seven years ago we had uh, paranormal investigators that heard that the building was haunted and uh, uh, they found orbs, which I don't know anything. I'm not a disbeliever uh, and said, yeah, the, the place is haunted. So uh, I told Will, I said, we're standing right where the orbs are. And they said, that's really weird because we're going to do like a part of this music video, a seance. And I said, yeah, don't, don't pull around with my ghost here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you never know. And Paul Giamatti had come in uh, last year and he was looking for books on the British Empire. And... Uh, <laughs> Instead, he came up with pirate books, which I think is pretty close to the British Empire, <laughs> being Irish. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, is there something back there? I said, well, he goes, there's, there's a presence back there. And I said, yeah, people tell me that. And he goes, no, there's, 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 there's something back there. So, uh, yeah, so there's, there's weird things happening here. I never was exposed to it. This would be a good place to be a ghost, though. You could pull yeah. down any book you wanted, and uh, and re I might I might haunt it myself. Did the books? Uh, I know the the building is being sold at the end of the year. To the the ghost part of the package, I or actually, are you taking them with you? I I know that sounds crazy, but I want to get in touch with John Levy, who was uh, who headed that investigation, the paranormal, and I'm just going to uh, say, you know. Can I take them with me, or what? What, what happens with these guys <laughs> or girls? So, <laughs> but I do have a number of customers who have come up over the years saying there's something back there, and so, so yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Of, I, if you have a building this big, people are going to start hearing things or seeing things. So. A lot of lot of old history in this city, so yeah, uh, you yeah. definitely got some yeah. got some ghosts. Yeah. Now, one of the back doors going, or the not the back door, but a door going down the hall into the larger part where the, the huge shelves is a book that is a sign on the wall that somebody put that says "Extol Anatopism." Yes, complete anarchism. It's <laughs> Greek. Yeah, anatopism yeah. is the mean, means something that is out of its proper place. Right. Anarchy, so I think uh, there was somebody was commenting on your organizational yes. system here. Yes, so yes. tell me a little bit about how the books are organized. Well, here. Jimmy Talone, uh, God bless Jimmy. Uh, I've known Jimmy again for fifty years. He's a photographer. He taught English at Radnor High School for 30-some years, and now he's, he's doing uh, photography full-time, and he's, he's a writer as well. But he wrote up a manifesto, which is if you're looking for the Dewey Decimal System, you better look somewhere else. <laughs> or if you're looking for you know, a Home Depot, <laughs> this is not the place to be. And uh, I, you know, I've only had a couple people that were... Uh, not happy with it. it was a German couple he was teaching at Penn uh, for a couple semesters and he came in with his wife 
And they were back there 10 minutes and he came up and he goes, this is crazy. This is, how do you, how do you do this here? How do you, how do you, how do you know? How do you know? He goes, I have to leave. It's crazy. <laughs> and they just left. I thought I was in Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> it was, and you had to laugh and you had to feel sorry because it was just sort of like, yeah, I can understand your frustration. Uh, well, 400,000 books, I think you should get a little leeway. And I think, like, the search is the fun part, I right? Do too, Don't yeah, you think, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, each bookstore is its own particular ordering system. There's no... And that ordering system is a reflection of the personalities that own or run the bookshop. You know, you, you can get a book in from a publisher and it says to put it in political science, but maybe it doesn't belong there. Maybe it belongs in poetry. You know, and, that, and that's where it gets beautiful because then you're guiding your customers through this sort of intellectual map that you've created and they can, they can follow your whims, you know? Yeah. Well, in your first book, the hard way, you could put that in uh, cookbooks or you could put it in essays. Right. You could put it in travel. Yeah. Um, a bookstore without genre would be amazing. Organized yeah. by theme, love, death, you know, that's pretty cool. recently um i'll tell you the exact morning on tuesday august 13th every day i get up and actually i read the paper you can hear the read the philadelphia Inquirer. page a9 there's a story with the headline special delivery by an amazon robot and it's got a photograph here of something that looks like one of those big like a big cooler like a big beer cooler on wheels so i got six wheels and the caption says, Amazon says that self-driving delivery robots about the size of a cooler can navigate obstacles. And so in Seattle, they've been delivering books and whatever I guess you can buy that could fit in this little robot. And it's driving around and uh, delivering things to, uh, to people. I was just wondering, Greg, did you ever think about employing robots here for Port Richmond Books? Uh, Sam, you lived in Philadelphia. <laughs> What do you think the lifespan of a robot <laughs> is going to be on the streets? One half block. <laughs> yeah. There are some cities. Seattle has a lot of laid back people. Philadelphia, we're union. Uh, uh, we're headbangers. And uh, we're curious about what roams around. <laughs> yeah. Fiercely there, tribal. There, there was a friendly robot that was touring the country, uh, and he he ended up getting beat up in Philadelphia. Yeah, actually, I looked that up. I remember that. That was in 2015. It was called Hitchbot, and this was the headline on CNN. Hitchbot, the hitchhiking robot, gets beheaded in Philadelphia. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> We're very particular so, so, about yeah. who comes into our neighborhood. Yeah. So we're uh, we're going to warn Amazon now. Be careful if you send your robots into Port Richmond and uh, other parts of the city. They may not fare well. But I do think, yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think there's something 
much just like the digital world there's something sinister at play here I mean, it's the message that definitely this delivering buying books online and having delivered or buying an ebook it removes the real life experience of coming to the bookstore and well, talking yeah, to it's greg not, it's not book selling yeah it's uh and servicing robots i mean you know books that aren't on paper and you were encouraging virtual experiences instead of real experiences and virtual experiences try to recreate the real experience but why just not have the real experience well we push something in this in this society where if i want it now i want it now and i want to be able to click now but this idea of we don't even live in neighborhoods anymore the the turnover rate of neighborhoods and particularly in the suburbs is so high that you don't know your neighbors anymore. Everything has been reduced to this very fast and grab culture, even homes, you know? So the idea of having a neighborhood bookshop implies that you live in a neighborhood and you feel a part of something and want to walk into it. But we're, we're losing that more and more with this idea that you can just get whatever you want, whenever you want it immediately on the phone. You know, people are disconnected from that whole process of, of cultivating these relationships within a, a four or five block radius and, you know, putting in roots somewhere. Yeah, you know, there's a great James McMurtry song. Who's the son of a... Uh, I'm, uh, it's Larry. Larry McMurtry. Larry McMurtry, yeah, great writer. And it's, I'm not from here, I just live here. Yeah, exactly. And that's the sort of culture that we we live in now. Um, yeah, there's in James Wood's uh, great book, How Fiction Works, there's a part where he talks about we live in a world where the screen has replaced the window. And instead of looking out the window at reality and engaging the world, we all stare at screens all the time. And uh, I mean, I think that overall, you know, that tendency is one reason bookstores are struggling, and you know, many are continuing to to close. It is the the way we view knowledge has changed too. Pre pre television or even radio, you know, unions would have meeting halls, and they would host speakers. You know. Upton Sinclair and Jack London, Emma Goldman, these people made viable livings on the speaker's route, you know, uh, Scott Nearing did as well. And so you could go, we, we had a much more open public life. You could go to a union hall as a non-union member and listen to Jack London give a speech, you know, and th- there was a public discourse happening in the streets that the creation of television and then the internet drives into the home. And then begins to manipulate in within the home. So you're not even going outside anymore to pursue these intellectual conversations. You know, it's, it's all being given to you as opposed to you having to go out and find it. You couple that with the book itself is a low profit margin item on the marketplace as a new book sale. You know, that tells you all you need to know about how Americans view knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's the lowest profit margin item you can sell on the American marketplace, a book. You know, I was thinking about literary culture in all, all forms of life. You know, the, the baseball pitchers, uh, Phil and Joe Necro, they wrote letters to each other throughout their baseball careers. And in 1990, they published a book about of, of their letters. And I think, can you imagine baseball players today publishing a book of their letters back and forth to one another? Or, you know, you'd be a collection of tweets that would take like 10 pages. But... Um, well, I want to think about, you know, this bookstore is, you know, just got maybe another month or two left that it's going to be open. But there have been a lot of great bookstores that have been lost in the last, you know, recent years. I think of one, you know, it's a student of the University of Georgia. 
in the late 80s, uh, Jackson Street Books was a fantastic used bookstore. And uh, I spent a lot of time browsing in there, going through the books. It was a beautiful, be- just a beautiful room. I mean, something about like shelves of books were like beautiful. You know, it's a it's one of the make the best ways you can decorate a place. And, you know, this is a, obviously a bookstore, so it was it was fantastic. But it went out of business in uh, a couple of years ago, I think 2016. Uh, we were talking about other stores, was the place in Lambertville. Yeah, Phoenix Books. Phoenix Books uh, was a used bookstore mm-hmm. that went out of business. Great bookshop. What are some other like say used bookstores that have gone under that you can think of? Just in this area? They're anywhere, really. Wasn't there a mystery bookshop up in Flemington, New Jersey, too? I can't remember if they're still open or not. Twice well, Told Tales. Who done it? Down in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, Allen's Books, which is a scholarly bookstore. Uh, Sessler's. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's. Philadelphia was a real book town. And it was, a, you know, it was the hub of publishing for many years. And, uh, you know, I have friends in the newspaper business and print i mean when i get the inquire every day delivered i mean it's like a disappearing newspaper uh shrinking and uh i have the last edition of the uh, bulletin i have a couple of bulletin boxes and just holding that and it's like god there's a lot here and you know when you get the inquire the daily news it's like okay i'll be done this and 20 minutes, a half hour. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia had many, many, uh, the big towns had many book, or uh, papers, newspapers. Mm-hmm. I think we might have had five papers at one point, uh, dailies. Yeah, and you think about not, you know, we talked about used bookstores, but remember Borders? I thought, you know, I thought that, I thought for a chain, a corporate chain, they did a pretty good job. I mean, it was, uh, it was, you could often find books. I remember I bought some Larry Brown books there in New York one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been gone for a number of years. And this is a recent story in the New York Times just a f- weekend or two ago. Um, they've closed 400 stores, Barnes & Noble, since yeah, 1997. Done. Yeah, they're done. And there's 627, but they've lost a billion dollar in market value over the last five years. They're done. And, uh, you know, they are really struggling. If you walk into one, you, they don't even see books. The, front, yeah, the whole front of the store yeah. is non, non-book yeah. items. Yeah. And then the way the, the stores are shaped... They immediately divert you toward the cafe. You have to make a whole cycle past all of those things to head to the back corner of the store to even see a book. You know, one thing I think they're doing is really interesting, or this, according to this article, I don't know if they've done it yet. They hired this guy from Waterstones in London who's coming over. And his, um, his theory, according to this article, says his guiding assumption, I'm quoting here, is that the only point of a bookstore is to provide a rich experience in contrast to a quick online transaction. So, Greg, I think you've been, like, really ahead of your time because that's what this <laughs> store has done. He, he's right, Provided but you can't experience. do that in a chain. Yeah, well, that it says You can't that, provide a rich experience in a large corporate entity. It doesn't. <laughs> it goes against uh, what it is. Yeah. Yeah, he wants to transform bookstores to be more like the Barnes and Nobles to be more like independent bookstores. I don't know. Do you think that can? I mean, we live in a nation where an anti-intellectual reality TV star businessman has become president. You know, what's the future (laughs) of bookstores with a nation that of sixty million people who supported him? Oh, they'll last. They they've always lasted. I mean, even. 
you know, the, the book selling trade goes back to even as early as the fifth century, there was a, a standing book trading, you know, viable community across the, the Mediterranean, the, the library of Alexandria stocked its books from book traders, not the printers, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there, there, it, it's a long-standing tradition. When we survived the Dark Ages, you know, it'll it'll survive now. But yeah. it it just it changes and it adapts every time that the the industry changes. But the book itself is, you, you can you can shut the internet down and we can lose power, but you can still create a book, you know, and you can pass books around in a way that you can't you can't do things digitally. You know, I can hand you a book and no one knows you've got it. Now now you've got something, you know, legitimately threatening to a power structure. This reminds me of something Greg told me once. Remember the n- number of years ago, there were like the Mayan sunspots where there was a, people were worried about them <laughs> obliterating all digital books and all technology. And Greg, you were hoping for that, right? Well, you were hoping yeah, oh, yeah, for, you were hoping yeah, for uh, yeah, yeah, all yeah, technology yeah. to go down so people would be yeah. at your door here yeah, yeah. needing reminded me of uh, <coughs> well I mean the whole culture reminds me of uh, Monty Python script where uh, the captain loses his mind and these soldiers that are following him are just they have nowhere to go they're just walking around in circles and running into uh, walls and keep walking into it so without you know without the internet i mean it's and the iphone i mean i walk into a restaurant in a bar and there'll be a couple there and they'll not even be talking to each other they'll be on their their iphones and it's like really it's uh, you know and you go to atlantis or you know a couple of the uh, fishtown bars and it's like six people sitting at the bar with their they're not interacting with each other uh they're playing games or they're talking to whoever they're talking to it's just uh, wow where did the social uh, structure go yeah you, there's no way you could get a nelson algren novel now out of any of the bars around you know, people aren't talking to each other in bars how are you going to get a yeah you know yeah so much for bar fly right <laughs> <laughs> The use of technology has changed in the 16 years since 2003 that you opened the store. It's proliferated so much. I mean, it was getting a foothold at that time, but you well, couldn't. We had it timed so perfectly to open up a bookstore when the internet was taking over. It's, just, uh, <laughs> it's like the old joke, how do you put an Irishman in a small business? You just start him out in a big one. <laughs> You know, I've one of the my fantasies uh, over the years has been to open it up my own bookstore. Mm. And when I live in you know, South Jersey, right near Collingswood, and there was a little bookstore there yeah, that was going out of business. I yeah. talked to you about yeah, this. I was, yeah. thinking, but the more I analyzed the um, the finances of it, it's even more precarious than trying to be a writer. Oh, which yeah. is a stupid way to try to earn a living and it's damn near impossible. <laughs> but selling books is even like less profitable than writing. Yeah. Them. That's why we all have three jobs. <laughs> well, if it wasn't for Mrs. Kogan and her uh, support, uh, this never would have gotten out of the first. It, it's impossible to do if you don't own the building, the bookshop. Right. In. right. It, because of the way books are sold, their value on the marketplace, it, you'd have a hard time paying rent. Or if you were renting a building, you'd have to be the sole employee and owner. Well, that's just, what they're running no into up at the Strand. 
I mean, they the own the The rent prices are going up in the area around that, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're lucky that they own the building. Yeah. But uh, yeah, with Gotham, that one out, what a great bookstore that was. Oh, that was a fantastic bookstore. Yeah, I used to go when it was right there on the Diamond Row. What was that, 47th, I think it was on? Yeah, Gotham, that was a fantastic yeah. bookstore in New York. I mean, the thing is, if you want to earn a certain amount of money and have a certain type of lifestyle, book selling is not going to provide that. But having quit a more financially rewarding profession for book selling and farming, I'm a lot happier now that I make a lot less money. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was a teacher and I, I, just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. And to be surrounded by books the way I am and people who love to read and writers and I, I would never give it up. Yeah, you know, ten years now I've been book selling, and I'm, I've told the Farley sisters even if they fired me, I'd still show up to work. They'd have to get a restraining order, you know. <laughs> and you were um, talking about independent bookstores, or, or some of them are doing well. A lot of that is location, but 2008 was the big one for the book industry. You know, when the economy went under, people really stopped buying books. It was not a necessary item for most people, and a lot of bookstores went under. 2008 and 2009 we barely got through it and um since 2009 this this past 10 year push there's been more indie bookshops opening nationally every year than the year prior and financially they seem to be doing better each year over the one prior to to it but uh it's it's a tough tough business we'll see how long you know to say more bookshops have opened every year since 2009 you're only 10 years into that that's not a big business cycle for a lot of those those we'll see if they last yeah they've got the uh this week's publishers weekly yeah. and they have a an article in there that the past month book sales were down yeah yeah and yeah i, I don't know if that's a gauge because they are mostly new bookstores right. yeah so the listeners understand farley's bookshop where i work deals in new books um, Greg is dealing in used books. So it's, even though we're both independent bookstores and a lot of the way they work is the same, that function is very different. What we have to deal with in terms of dealing with publishers and getting books in is very, very different. And it makes a little bit of a different beast financially, um, than, than doing new, you know, used or used in rare books. It changes the, the nature of the business a little bit. But when we talk about new bookshops opening, that's Primarily what we're talking about is when pub- when Publishers Weekly is talking about bookshops opening, they're talking about indie bookshops selling new books. Yeah. You know, every time we lose a bookstore, I mean, I feel like we lose a little bit of our humanity. Yeah, we do. Yeah, you know? You're right. Absolutely. Because yeah. they're such important cultural institutions, and, I mean, they have this real sense of humanity where online does not. And, uh, I mean, I worry about our future when bookstores close down. So I like what you said, Buffy, about... Uh, books will always be around and there's a demand. They will. The bookstore is a different beast. You know, the the library, for as remarkable as they are and as well curated as they can be, it's still an official state institution and with all that weight behind it. But a bookshop is independent of that. And so it's this very free passing of knowledge from one person to another. So to lose a bookshop of any stripe is is a blow to that passing. It's quite sad. But at a place like this, this is like this is part of a neighborhood and Greg is a repository of neighborhood stories in a way that, you know, you're not just losing a bookstore here, you're losing a chunk of a neighborhood. Yeah. 
But with that said, I'm really thrilled that like I had a dozen years of coming in here and being a customer and getting to know Greg. And I may always like will cherish this place, you know, after it's gone and uh, feel very lucky that, to know that I got to know it as well as I did. So, Greg, thanks for bringing the store into my life and many of the uh, people who've bought books here. And it won't be forgotten. And it's good to know that you've you're taking all of the uh, the rare books here. Yeah. and are going to continue to sell yeah. books in some yeah. form. So yeah. uh, listeners should stay uh, stay tuned for the next chapter Further in uh, Greg Gillespie's <laughs> book selling. So, and there might even be the ghosts that come with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. just uh, hope you keep doing what you're doing, Sam, and uh, not just here with the podcast, but your writing. And uh, it means a lot. Uh, I'm not... Uh, that savvy about podcasts, but uh, maybe this will open up my eyes and or ears. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll put it on a cassette tape for you. Real to real. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you for Same. joining us. Sure, a lot thank of fun. you.